This podcast was recorded on Friday, December 4th at 1.19 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It sounds like the government is clearly give it, giving itself a lot of wiggle room to do whatever it wants to do. of spending is unprecedented, the deficit is staggering. Billions being spent to help parents, businesses, and long-term care homes. 18 months after the Liberals' last tabled a federal financial plan, Canada's first female finance minister tabled her fall economic statement this week. We will do whatever it takes to help Canadians stay healthy, safe, and solvent. Christia Freeland outlined $79.6 billion in new spending since July. She pegged the deficit at just over $381 billion. But that doesn't include a lot of Liberal spending outlined in this fall's throne speech. The debt is now more than a trillion. Yes, that's right, $1.2 trillion. And more spending is on the way. We intend to roll out a growth plan of between 3 and 4% of GDP. So that is between 70 and $100 billion. The Prime Minister says that money is required to get the country back on track when the pandemic eases. That's how you ensure the long-term health of our economy. If the opposition had any major concerns, they didn't dwell on it. Criticism of the economic statement didn't even last the whole week, as the NDP, the Bloc, and the Conservatives hammered the Liberals on the government's vaccine rollout instead. We don't know when the vaccine is arriving. We don't know how it's being distributed, and we don't know which Canadians are going to receive it first. While the opposition may not be interested in talking about debt, deficits, and government spending, but we are. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. Today on the show, a deep dive into government financing. We asked for your questions, and we'll answer as many as we can, including some of mine. How much debt can the government carry? Who's buying it? How risky is the government strategy? And why could an extra $100 billion be needed? The former parliamentary budget officer, Kevin Page, is here, as is the current parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, and Rebecca Young, the director of fiscal and provincial economics at Scotiabank. They'll help us fact check the government. But first, of course, we begin with the substance of the government's plan and the politics behind it. This is uh, an economic measures that, uh, of course, will be a matter of confidence. Oh, dear. Can an election really be on the horizon? There's no question about it that we don't want an election. We certainly don't want one. Me neither. <laughs> Stick around. fall economic statement is our roadmap for the path ahead. But our response to this crisis doesn't end there. The response certainly doesn't end there. There was a lot more spending in this fall economic statement. There was probably a lot more than we anticipated. To unpack all of it, I'm joined by Ottawa reporter Zian Lum. Hi, Z. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Hi, Althea. So what stood out for you? 
Well, I don't think it took either of us very long before we both got these strong, maybe pre-election vibes from this fall economic statement. Um, I think after 15 minutes, after we both started reading the documents on Monday, um, you messaged me and you actually said, so they're planning an election, which, yes, I agree. But I'm curious, like what kind of gave it away for you? Yes, those $1,200 payments uh, to families who have kids under six, um, and even for those earning more than $120,000 a year, $600 payments, I thought was basically a red flag saying that the liberals uh, hope to send uh, nice little checks in the mail four times uh, next year, uh, maybe just in time before an election or maybe even during an election campaign. That seemed to be... uh, a flag, a flag that they're they're thinking of possibly uh, trying to convince people with their own money. What stood out for you? I think the red flag for me was the early declaration that they're ready to spend, 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 spend. <laughs> um, so obviously, I'm referring to the three-year stimulus plan, approximately three to four percent of GDP to jumpstart the economy after the pandemic. So obviously, there aren't a lot of details on that. And that was a big promise that I think we, you know, we'll all be keeping our eyes on. There's a lot more in this mini budget, I call it. Um, what are some of the highlights? Give me the bullet points. All right. The bullet points, just as you ordered. Uh, remember restaurants? Okay. So there's the $1 billion that has been earmarked for long-term health care to uh, help provinces and territories with protecting their seniors and the most vulnerable There's also um, federal government signaling interest that they want to establish national care standards for long-term care, obviously, to the provinces and territories' discretion with that. Um, Just like you mentioned, the free money for parents of young children, there was the $1,200 top-up to the Canada Child Benefit for all eligible kids under six. Um, There was also that $3 billion uh, allotted to plant 2 billion trees, which is actually a a recycled liberal election promise, but it was uh, mentioned a few times in this document, which is kind of interesting. Um, There was also a promise to bump up the maximum rate of the Canada emergency wage subsidy to 75%. So no bailout for the big airline carriers, but there is money to help the regional air carriers. And there's also money to help regional airports and airport authorities as well. Um, The feds are also dropping the cost of the GST and HST on face masks and face shields. uh, Very topical for our surreal pandemic reality. There was also the $400 tax deduction for eligible workers uh, like you and I, who have found themselves suddenly working from home because of this pandemic. Um, They're also cracking down on multinational digital giants. So Amazon, Netflix, and Spotify, Airbnb, um, because those are big companies that haven't been reliably uh, collecting GST and HST and remitting it to the CRA. So, Or haven't at all in some cases. Yeah. And I think because of, you know, looking at the pandemic budget books, they realize that they need more money. So now they're cracking down. Uh, on these digital giants. And obviously, last but not least, that uh, child care promise, national child care, something that's been always promised but never delivered for the past 50 years. Uh, in this fall economic statement, they 
set aside $20 million over the next five years to create a federal secretariat on early learning and child care. But obviously, details are quite thin. They're kind of dangling that carrot a little longer. And we'll have to wait until, um, I guess, the budget in the new year for more details. You can almost assume that the conservatives are going to say the liberals are spending too much money and the NDP are going to say you're not moving fast enough. But what was the reaction? Reaction was kind of funny, um, I guess, in a macabre sense. Uh, the NDP finance critic, uh, Peter Julian, uh, actually responded to the mini budget by warning that you know austerity is coming. Canadians are struggling to put food on the table, struggling to keep a roof over their head. But when they read the economic update, what they will see is austerity is coming, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, I'm accustomed in this House to facing many accusations, but I didn't expect to be accused of a policy of austerity this afternoon. And the Conservatives, well, the finance critic was obviously trying to paint the Liberals as reckless big spenders. And as the red ink on our balance sheet turns a dark crimson, we're facing a $399 billion deficit, Mr. Speaker, not $400 billion. No, no, no. And Canadians know that not even half of that went to the emergency programs. This government is not providing a plan. They're not providing clarity. And the Conservative leader was more focused on kind of needling the knowledge gap around vaccine rollout and what the plans are around that. Um, the Liberals are feeling quite confident about what they've laid out in the fall economic statement, with the Prime Minister saying that this is going to go to a confidence vote. But the opposition parties really haven't said whether or not they'll support it or not support it. So we're just waiting out on more details on that, maybe a potential showdown, who knows? Maybe it's, you know, our Christmas present. Thank you, Z, for unpacking it for us. I do appreciate it. Thank you, Althea. Zian Lum is an Ottawa reporter with HuffPost Canada. Conservative finance critic Pierre Poilievre said this week he's worried Canada is heading towards a debt cliff. The government says don't worry about the debt. It's not so bad, and interest rates are low. Well, according to the numbers the government published, the deficit will reach as much as 56% of GDP by next year. In 1996, when we had a debt crisis, during which the government couldn't even raise debt on international markets, our debt-to-GDP ratio was 66%, only 10 points higher than it's projected to be next year. And we are moving very quickly to add more. Interest rates were much higher in the 1990s, but Poilievre's comments got us thinking about Paul Martin, the former Liberal Finance Minister's 1995 budget, and the lessons learned from that experience. When I uh, uh, first became Finance Minister, Canada was in a bit of doo-doo, um, and... Uh, that's not the word I used. Debt was soaring at an enormous rate. Deficits were out of control. We were described in the pages of the Wall Street Journal as a third world country. We were paying 36 cents out of every dollar, out of every tax dollar went to the servicing the national debt. I was afraid our interest rates were going to go up through the roof and that we were essentially going to be what Greek Greece is today. Because what we did in 1995, the cuts that we made, make no mistake, this was major surgery, and it's not something that as a country we want to go through every 10 years. 
especially when all that's required to avoid it is a commitment to responsible planning and a commitment to exercise discipline. But unfortunately, in today's world, financial crises are the rule. They are not the exception, and governments should prepare for them. So the question that we have to deal with now in the midst of this crisis is to begin to wonder about the next one. That was former Finance Minister and former Prime Minister Paul Martin speaking to the Canadian Club of Toronto in 2008 and 2014. Does Canada have the fiscal room to handle this current crisis, let alone the next one? We'll answer that question and others you sent us next. Last month, we did a brainstorm on HuffPost, and I realized that a lot of times in our political coverage, we take for granted people already have a pretty specific knowledge base. And that may not be the case, at least not for everybody. So we asked three experts to come and answer some of the questions you sent us through social media and in our inbox this week about debt, deficits, and government spending. My name is Yves Giroux. I'm the Parliamentary Budget Officer. I'm here in my office in Ottawa. And before being the PBO, I worked for a few years at the Canada Revenue Agency. I also worked for several years at uh, the Department of Finance, as well as the Privy Council Office. And I have also worked in a few other departments throughout my career. This is Kevin Page, live from Britannia Village in Ottawa. I'm the president and CEO of an Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. I was the former Parliamentary Budget Officer and a longtime public servant. It's just so great to be with you. Hi, my name is Rebecca Young. I'm Director of Fiscal and Provincial Economics with Scotiabank. I've worked in the past at the Federal Finance Department as well as the International Monetary Fund. I'm joining from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Before we get into some of the, the more complicated questions, I thought we would start with the basics. So the first question I have is, what is the size of Canada's economy? The size of the economy is between 2.2 and 2.3 trillion dollars. And what is the size of federal government spending usually? Usually the government spends between 330 and 340 billion dollars, uh, give or take, in any given year. Usually it's about 15% of that GDP. And of course, because of the COVID supports, it's almost doubled now. It's probably in the neighborhood of uh, 27%, which is unbelievable. Okay. And what about the provinces? How much do they usually spend? Uh, they spend a bit more. They spend about $600 billion, and that's because they have different responsibilities. Notably, they're responsible for the very expensive healthcare system and also the education system. Provinces carry the bulk of health and education expenditures. Those are very big expenditures. And now we're seeing long-term care is another booming expenditure that falls on the back of of uh, provinces. So all these expenditures that are actually strongly correlated to aging demographics fall on the back of provinces. Where does the federal government's revenue come from? For the longest of time, we, we tax, uh, a lot of the revenue come through income, income taxes, personal income taxes, corporate income taxes. Um, there's also, <clears throat> we have revenue, significant revenue sources from, you know, the GST, the good service tax. So about two thirds is income taxes. And about 12% comes from G the GST at the federal level again. The rest 
federally speaking, is made up of EI contributions, excise taxes, import duties, and net revenues from crown corporations. So governments seem to be, by the numbers that you've given us, uh, spending much more than they take in. Right now, yes, especially during COVID. Now, we often hear about um, a fiscal imbalance between Ottawa and the provinces. Is this a real thing? It depends who you ask. So a fiscal imbalance is defined as one level of government being much better off than the other. The province's current you know, tax structure relative to spending is not sustainable. And one of the big reasons for that is health care, that um, we still have, there's a gap that needs to be closed. And that's a conversation that we're probably going to talk about a lot between now and the budget and after the budget. Because they don't have the revenue sources to be able to fund an expense that we expect them to fund. Yeah, so exactly. Their fiscal structure looks a little weak relative to the impact that demographics will play on their health sector. So we, you know, health sector, health spending in, in the province is probably about, you know, again, these are averages in the neighborhood of, say, 40 percent of, uh, of, 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 of provincial territorial spending goes towards health. Uh, it is eating, you know, it's, it's growing dramatically. Uh, we are aging pretty quickly, actually, as uh, Certainly, I feel, feel like I'm aging pretty quickly over the past little while, but just demographically, the average age of the country is going up. And so people, like, you know, I'm in my 60s now. We tend to use the, uh, the healthcare system a lot more than we did, say, when I was you know, in the 50s, 40s, 30s. So, yeah, I think there's going to be a need to find more revenues at the provinces. Should governments be running deficits? Again, it depends who you ask. Um, most people will say it's okay to run small deficits because uh, a country has a tax base, which is essentially the size of the economy. And generally speaking, the economy grows at a regular pace, at least by inflation, if not by inflation and population growth. So the, the size of the pie is constantly expanding with a few exceptions, for example, through through the COVID pandemic or recessions. Are we in an unsustainable position at the moment? The, the federal government is in a sustainable position at the moment. The fiscal plan that they've laid out in the fall update provides um, an outlook over the next five years of bringing down deficits very fairly quickly as expected as the temporary spending runs out they are going to still inject another 100 billion or so but deficits will still be coming in they will be coming down and over the medium term say i.e the five-year outlook debt as a share of gdp is coming down so it does meet um, you know many definitions of sustainability i think what they've attempted to do is remove the uncertainty but by making the parameters too broad and the criteria too vague, it arguably has introduced more uncertainty. So, for example, it begs the question of what do they mean by recovery? So they indicate that they will continue to spend until they have clear signs of recovery. So that means we're going to keep the taps on. That's the default until we're sure we can turn them off. People were expecting a recovery plan. They were expecting language around recovery and growth enhancing, those types of uh, words that are usually associated with longer-term growth. 
but we saw the word stimulus uh, instead swapped out for recovery. And stimulus is usually interpreted as short-term demand creation. And so that's considered as more of a temporary type of spending, you know, get money into the pockets of Canadians that will spend it quickly, which is important at the deepest point of a crisis. But as you head in further into the recovery, you actually want to look for win-wins where you might be able to create some short-term demand, but actually also create some longer-term growth potential, some more investment-type activity that will uh, lead to stronger growth two, three years down the road. Is the analogy of your own personal um, household finances correct? That um, you know you should be investing in things like a house that gives you um, the ability to purchase other things down the road or make, I, I would say, investments like public transit or education. Is, is that a correct analogy when you think about government financing or is it misleading? So from the broad point of view of how we, households put together budgets, there's a lot of similarities. But on one level, you, know, you can't compare the government uh, with a household because the government's actually, they have access to their own bank. They have access to a central bank. Central banks can actually print money. Governments can, you know, they, they, they play an enormous role in financial markets, even through their body, through the, you know, the creation of this debt and the distribution of, the, of this debt. So yeah, that's, you know, we don't get to print our own money. Well, you can compare from a day-to-day perspective, but the big, big difference between governments and a household is that governments survive its citizens. So, for example, a household, you have, sadly, we have an infinite, finite lifespan. So we were born, we work, hopefully we live long enough to retire and we draw down our savings. But a government does not retire. It doesn't have an end date or an expiry date, so to speak. So a government will be there well after we are all deceased. And hopefully the size of the economy, even if it if it's only for inflation, we will continue will continue to grow whereas a household at one point we wind down okay let's talk about debt lots of questions on debt how much debt can canada carry nobody knows for sure if you look at the international experience Greece was on the verge of bankruptcy with a debt-to-GDP ratio of about 150%. You look at Japan right now, they're above 200%, and nobody's blinking when they look at Japan's debt level. Why is Japan such an anomaly? How does it manage to get away with being such an anomaly is probably a better question. Yeah, well, probably two fundamental reasons. One, the Bank of Japan is the holder of a good chunk of the Japanese debt. So it's not on the market. It's not a marketable debt. So it doesn't really affect the interest rates they pay. And second, it's an an export-oriented economy, which is perceived as highly competitive and highly innovative. So the prospects of future wealth being generated by Japan is, is high. People have confidence that Japan is an innovative country and will continue to do so. It doesn't depend, for example, on oil wells that could be depleted or a commodity 
one or a couple of commodities who which price could go down overnight there's different ways to look at a debt threshold like first of all canada has never defaulted on its debt right now canada there's three big credit rating agencies in the world Standard Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch, two of the big ones, uh, Moody's and Standard Poor's, basically say we're AAA. You cannot get better than AAA. That's like being Bobby Orr if you're a hockey player. Like, just, there's nobody better, right, in that kind of sense. What would the debt default range be for Canada? It could be well in excess of 100%. And right now, we're talking about debt-to-GDP numbers of about 50%. We're nowhere near a debt default situation. And it would be well north of 100%. But at the debt threshold with respect to a downgrade, we could be getting very close to that right now. We could be, you know, over the next couple of years, uh, you know, Standard & Poor's, Moody's, they're going to be looking hard at Canada. And what does that mean if we get downgraded? Probably not much. Is Canada now in a debt spiral, continuing to borrow to manage repayments? So I think that would be a case where we were back in the 1990s, where 36 cents out of every dollar of federal revenue was allocated to servicing the debt. So that's a case where your revenues are barely sufficient to, well, to they're sufficient, debt. but yeah, to pay your the interest on your debt. And your deficit is smaller than what you pay in, in debt costs. So that's where you get into a kind of a debt spiral, debt and debt spiral. There's no simple answer with any of this as to what the uh, appropriate level of debt is or importantly what the debt ceiling is. I think a simplistic way of referencing it is that no one really knows what a debt ceiling is. You'll only know it when you get there but it'll be then too late to do anything about it. Somebody's gonna have to be Paul Martin in like in 2025 and you know, and basically, if, if the economy is recovered, they're gonna, you know, they've got to, you know, kind of deal with the fiscal issue and create some of that fiscal space so future prime ministers, finance ministers can actually help Canadians when things go bad. So, so fiscal policy needs to be there in the tough times, but also in the good times, that's when you really got to get active and kind of, you know, you've got to put in the appropriate constraints. And in this case, um, yeah, it, your spending reviews, you know, we had spending reviews in the late 1990s. Uh, higher taxes, we're probably, you know, we're maybe three, four years away from that. But we got to start laying the context so that, you know, we're ready to do that, to be fair to future generations. Where does the Bank of Canada get its money? Um, it gets its money out of thin air. It prints it. So it creates it. That's where money gets created. So how does that make sense? Uh, it makes sense because that's what all currencies are based on these days, uh, at least most currencies. So the US dollar is made out of thin air. The euro is made out of thin air. It's what we call fiat currency. So they're based on the trust that citizens and institutions place in that currency having a value. So the bank issues paper bills, but also issues money by buying bonds and depositing the amounts in the government's, the government's bank account that it has. So that's how money gets created. So why doesn't the Bank of Canada just print more money? Because the more of something that exists, 
the less value it has. Like you see what goes on in certain parts of time, certain countries in South America where they deal with hyperinflation issues. Or people just, you know, um, they lose trust in the financial system. And, you know, we saw what happened even in the global financial crisis when people lost trust just over basically the way the financial system was treating housing. And markets collapsed. We lost like four investment banks in a week. So, so this element of trust is, is critical in the system um, where, yeah, you know, you people do have access. They could, you know, see the proverbial printing machine. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be, there's a limit to all these things. We're throwing all this money into the system. Like eventually it's going to, you know, this, you're going to see it in an overall, a bigger increase in, in or a bigger upward push on, on prices in general. And uh, that will drive, raise interest rates. And then, you know, central banks are going to work very hard to make sure that doesn't happen. But, you know, the potential upward pressure on interest rates through inflation could be a real problem years down the road because we're throwing so much money in the system. We are printing money. We are deficit financing a lot of programs. And could that be inflationary? People think yes, but not in the short term. Is the Bank of Canada at the moment um, buying too much government debt? Um, that's a good question. Some people, and few people, I should say, are saying yes, but most economists are saying no, because far from having inflation, there's evidence that there are risks, or at least there were risks in the pandemic, at uh, the worst of the pandemic of deflation, so prices collapsing, or at least not increasing at all, zero inflation. So that suggests that the bank was not buying too much in terms of government bonds, because had it bought too much or issued too many dollars, then there would have been a, a resurgence in inflation. That has not happened yet. It doesn't mean it cannot happen later, because what we've seen is people, when they received government funding through the CERB and various other supports, they have tended to save that money. Why has Canada spent so much more money than similar countries that are also similarly affected by the pandemic? It could be that we just overdid it, but we won't really know until for a few years. And it's also possible that this stimulus, the, the increase in savings, people are going to go out and spend. Like, it's kind of like summertime in Canada where, you know, when the weather gets nice, you know, people want to spend. Like they want to go to restaurants and they want to buy clothes and they just they want to go on holidays. And people are, you know, there's going to be some pent-up demand. It could be that Canada is going to actually fuel this pent-up demand by putting money into people's bank accounts uh, in 2020. Um, let's talk about the government's plan. The finance minister has said she plans to use guardrails, which she has defined or identified as under um, as the unemployment rate, the total hours of work, and the level of unemployment in the economy. What are these guardrails intended to do? They're intended to serve as a trigger for the government to start winding down its planned stimulus. I think what the government has done is created unnecessary uncertainty. So I would say that what they've tabled out, taken at face value, is sustainable over the medium term. I also think that what they are trying to do with this stimulus is actually quite innovative in the sense that this these this concept of guardrails is that they say that they will calibrate fiscal policy to the recovery and they specifically mention some job related indicators you know 
credit to them for trying to depoliticize fiscal policy, but they've not given enough clarity around what it means. The problem with these indicators is that the minister has not clearly indicated which ones. She's given a few examples that you mentioned, and she has not clearly indicated what would be the precise triggers. So if you look at some of the indicators that are mentioned in the statement, for example, um, the proportion of adults who have a job, that may never go back to pre-pandemic level because of the aging of the population. So by that sole measure, we could wind up in or end up in a situation where the government perpetually stimulates the economy in the hope of returning to pre-pandemic employment um, employment rates. Or if you look at another measure, the hours of work, many forecasters predict that within 12 to 18 months, we will be at the level, the pre-pandemic level, when it comes to the number of hours worked. So maybe that level of stimulus won't be necessary at all. So these indicators, they need to be uh, worked on, to say it politely. <laughs> if you were not being polite, what would you say? I'd say it sounds like the government is clearly give it, giving itself a lot of wiggle room to do whatever it wants to do. By not defining them and giving a, a possible laundry list of um, qualifiers, benchmarks, as you've, I think, really nicely described, uh, may actually even conflict with one another. So obviously she can pick and choose whichever one that she decides to abide with. Um, the government has also said that it plans to spend, as you said, 70 to $100 billion, or 3 to 4% of GDP on a stimulus, an extra stimulus, but hasn't said uh, what that stimulus would be. How does the government even know that it should be spending or think it should be spending 3 to 4% of GDP? I don't think it knows right now because... Uh, we don't, they've, they've indicated clearly it's highly uncertain how the economy will perform over the next couple of months, let alone the next couple of years. And granted, nobody knows for sure. So it's a bit uh, premature to, to, to quantify the amount of the stimulus that will be needed. But it's also good, good planning to say that the government will be ready to stimulate the economy. So I don't know how they arrived at that figure of 3 to 4% of GDP, uh, but I think that's probably where politics entered into, into the equation much more than pure economics. And that's well outside my area of expertise. Does the public or should the public be worried about the amount of debt that you know, now in the trillion that Canada is carrying? And can we continue to post deficits the way that the government has outlined? When you have a almost $400 billion deficit and you say we'll also add 70 to $100 billion in new spending over the next three years, you get close to what is permanent new spending. And it's easy to to believe that some of that spending could be made permanent. It'll be very tempting to introduce new programs after you've had three additional years of significant new government spending. I think there's an issue about is 100 billion even enough? But you know, there's gonna be people saying, well, I want childcare. 
I want a national childcare program. I want like a real progress in dealing uh, and to decarbon the economy. I want a basic income program for all Canadians. And each one of those programs, or I want a pharmacare program. Those are each one of those programs could be ten billion dollars each. You know, and think of like each point on the GST is probably seven, eight billion dollars. So you know, you have to raise taxes a lot to pay for those kind of programs. Correct me if I'm wrong, but even before the pandemic, the government was financing some of its program through structural deficits as well. Like the Canada Child Benefit Program, um, they haven't raised taxes enough to make that program balance out or be in the black. So were we not already on a path where we had structural deficits and now the temptation is just to maybe have those structural deficits be larger? Again, you summarize it very well. We were, before the pandemic, in a structural deficit situation, and that didn't seem to worry the government at all. So the temptation with the pandemic will be exactly like that. Run even bigger structural deficits, because what's a 40 or $50 billion deficit when you've had almost $400 billion in one year and 120-something the next year? So returning to $50 billion deficits will sound like reasonable and sustainable for most people after the unprecedented levels of deficit. So yes, the temptation will be to implement as many of the speech from the throne commitments as they can, because now is probably a time where Canadians are not that worried or as worried as they would have been a year ago with 50 or 60 or 45 billion dollar permanent deficits but maybe they should be i think they should be they should be concerned about ongoing structural deficits of that magnitude that was yves Giroux, canada's current parliamentary budget officer the man tasked with trying to keep our politicians honest with the numbers and kevin page the president and the ceo of the institute of fiscal studies and democracy at the university of ottawa he was also Canada's first parliamentary budget officer. And you also heard from Rebecca Young. She's the Director of Fiscal and Provincial Economics at Scotiabank. That's our program this week, and it's probably our last show until the holidays. We hope to be back with you when the House returns in January. But as you may have heard, HuffPost Canada is changing ownership, and we're not really sure what all of that means. If we're not back, a really big thank you for sharing your time with us over these past four seasons. We are a small but fantastic team. I couldn't do it without Zian Lum, HuffPost Ottawa reporter, who helps produce this show, and Mikhail Stein and Nicole Edwards, who stitched the show together. A really big thank you to them. As always, we welcome your feedback. You can reach me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Althea Raj. That's A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J. So until 2021, hopefully, may you and yours have a wonderful COVID-19 friendly Hanukkah, Christmas, or Kwanzaa, or whichever holiday you celebrate. Please stay safe and warm. Bye.